Hello and welcome. Bienvenido. And assalamu alaikum. Welcome to AO Access to Success, the podcast series developed by the AO Access Task Forces to broaden your perspectives for personal and professional development. Today's podcast is hosted by Dr. Samantha Morello, the lead for the AO Access Task Force, Faculty and Leader Development. Hello, my name is Samantha Morello. I'm a large animal veterinary surgeon and a member of the AO Vet North America faculty. And I'm also the lead of uh, the Faculty and Leader Development Task Force for AO Access. We've put a lot of effort into creating the most current and relevant content for our listeners from the AO community. And so this is an exciting day, creating a podcast in the AO Access to Success series, looking to facilitate your personal and professional development by exploring dimensions of clinicians as leaders. Co-host with me today is Dr. Emmanuel Menga. Thanks, Samantha, for introducing me, and thank you for getting us involved with the uh, podcast. My name is Emmanuel Menga, and I'm an associate professor of orthopedic spinal surgery at the University of Rochester. I also serve as the associate residency program director of the uh, orthopedic residency program and also serve as the orthopedic spine fellowship director. And we're delighted to have as our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Lord, to lead us in this discussion about how gender, race, and socioeconomics can influence our ability to provide healthcare and also how we navigate through healthcare careers. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Lord is joining us from University of California in Los Angeles, where she serves as an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery. Dr. Lord is a fellowship trained spine surgeon uh, with dual training in orthopedic and neurological spinal surgery. Dr. Lord, when we talk about health disparities and how we provide or how we're able to provide care to our patients, where are we at and where do we want to go? And how do you think we can leverage our current base of knowledge to create the meaningful change that we're all after? Thank you for having me. And I'd like to thank uh, AO for recognizing this important topic and having me here to discuss it. So in terms of where we are at, I think, especially with the changes that have happened in the past year and the sort of new willingness to discuss disparities, uh, it's becoming more and more obvious that spine surgery and orthopedic surgery are significantly behind first parity in terms of just the general population, but also many other fields uh, in achieving you know, equity or equality, both in representation and then also in uh, services and outcomes where patients are. So I think in terms of where we are, there's a new recognition that there are these disparities and they exist. And I think sort of the first steps are being taken to identify them. And then most importantly, to identify where we go next. So in terms of where we are current knowledge, I would say it's somewhat limited, but evolving. There have been some studies which have demonstrated the disparities, both in terms of gender and racial or ethnic differences in terms of outcomes and services that are provided to patients. And I think what's really missing is the what what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? I couldn't agree more with everything you've said. Based on what we know from the literature and health disparities, more specifically with gender inequality and racial inequality, 
we know there, these are rooted problems within orthopedic and spinal surgery, as you discussed. So as we talk about clinicians in our trade and how it intersects w- within our profession, uh, I guess the question is how can we engage a wider audience, go beyond talking about bias, behind, uh, beyond talking about allyship, So I I completely agree, Emmanuel. I think first, we really need to dispel the notion that achieving this type of equity or eliminating disparities is solely in the interests of, you know, certain people, underrepresented minorities, and that's, you know, for overrepresented majorities, essentially, to engage in this is just about uh, allyship. Having a more equitable society is something that actually benefits everybody not just those who are currently on the losing end of this, but it might not be obvious initially how that might be. And it might in fact feel that it is a zero-sum game. My, my cousin, who is an advocate in the entertainment industry for minorities, often says that when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression, but it's not. There have been numerous studies that have looked at this primarily in the realm of uh, income inequality, but also different types of uh, inequalities. And they've demonstrated that their improvements in health social well-being, life expectancy, crime, social mobility, and innovation in societies that have less inequality. And this might be due to the fact that essentially when everyone feels like they have an equal shot, when there's more equality, everyone feels that they're essentially part of one greater whole. They're not on one team versus another. There's more of a sense of uh, common good and less, uh, less competition. So I think that creating this spirit of a communal good that these conversations regarding, you know, diversity, it's essentially it's framed in such a way that people who are in the majority understand that they're not losing anything by joining and supporting a more diverse and inclusive workforce or in terms of engaging in more uh, diverse and equitable understanding of the patients they're they're taking care of, that having diversity in thought and in patients and in care does benefit the care and the working environment for everybody. Elizabeth, I think you made a tremendous point there about how equity doesn't just benefit the individual. It has a compounding effect on improving the health and success of the whole community. An important addition to that, when we talk about organizations, I mean, anything from a small community practice to a large corporate hospital, it's become clear from some really great evidence that groups like McKinsey and the nonprofit Catalyst have shown us that equity even benefits the productivity of the organization. So it's like a health bonus, a health economics bonus. It's kind of a win-win for everybody. There's certainly industries that have been way ahead of us and have shown very significant changes with uh, some of the uh, plans they've implemented to improve what is improving diversity and inclusion or improving leadership within the organizations to represent the workforce within the uh, organization. From your experience with the role you've taken now as a spine surgeon, what are the most proud achievements you've been able to, uh, things you've been able to do to influence access and treatment, especially uh, when it comes to race differences or uh, gender differences and disparities? In terms of improving access, I think that that's a very important topic. And I think it's something that is very difficult to achieve on an individual level. So in terms of access, I guess I would start with to the field of orthopedic surgery. I think that representation is incredibly important, as you've mentioned. And I know that you have personal experience with when I personally was a medical student, I saw Dr. Sharla Fisher, who's one of those female spine surgeons, who's a woman of color like myself, 
doing spine surgeon independently as a resident. And for the first time, I could really see myself in her skin and doing the things that she was doing. And so I try to model that for my students and the residents just being visible and serving as just a woman of color doing these pretty big surgeries so that they can see that this is a possibility for them, even if they don't look like, you know, the typical person that they previously envisioned. And this is a big reason that I'm in academic medicine at all. In terms of improving access to patients, uh, that's a more difficult question in terms of our U.S. healthcare system. I do have some control over which insurances I take, and I do take all insurances. However, as I'm sure everyone listening knows, this can be extremely onerous in terms of paperwork and coordinating care, not to mention some insurances reimburse significantly less, sometimes not even enough to pay the cost. So I believe being in academic medicine, it's a mission of tertiary and quaternary care centers to provide access for those who need specialized care without regard to their ability to pay However, uh, this can be difficult for one person to achieve. For example, if I want to do a surgery on someone, but the radiology services don't accept their insurance, then this person has to figure out where they can get x-rays. It's not in my clinic. It'll have to be somewhere else. And so this is really an issue that, that will have to be spoken to more by the health system because we're just more and more interconnected. A single provider saying, hey, I'm gonna, I'd like to help you isn't enough these days. Medicine is a team sport and everyone needs to essentially get on board with increasing access. One provider isn't isn't going to be enough. Yeah, no, I think those are all great points. And I think taking, you know, also as a clinician, taking care of spine patients and also uh, trying to provide the best care you can, equal care amongst all my patients. I think one of the biggest things we can do is uh, not just talk about it, but also lead by example, as we've uh, previously discussed. I think there's certain things that we take for granted with the influence that we have over people who look like us, which I think is a critical thing. I think that's how we influence more people to come into the field to help improve diversity within within the uh, specialty itself. I know there have been several studies that have been performed through the academy or through various societies as to why you have less minorities or, uh, or underrepresented groups within orthopedic specialty. And what I would say is I try to lead by example. So I think, you know, the, the times where you're stereotyped. So I have students who see you and they think you've always been successful and put you on a pedestal and they may never see themselves becoming what you've been able to achieve. And I think that's what we get caught up with sometimes where we, we, we forget about where we came from, what we and what we're trying to achieve. And I try to lead by example to the students. And I'm sure we can discuss more as to what you've been able to do with your students to influence them, not necessarily just to go into orthopedic surgery or spine surgery, but to join the medical uh, field and provide care to to patients because it's not just an orthopedic or spinal surgery uh, issue. In my personal experience, I think Taking the way I approach patient care, talking to my patients, the way I approach uh, students when I come across students, I'm always eager to teach them. I, I can give an example of my resident in my previous practice, who was a black male, and uh, it was in his first year in residency. And from what he told me, I did not notice until several years later, he's now a spine surgeon too. But what he told me is after he saw me and met me and did surgeries with me and was very, he was very impressed and very motivated and was, it was the first time he was able to see someone who looks like him uh, performing spine surgery. And that alone was the biggest motivation for him to consider doing spine surgery. And once he got involved in spinal research and doing spine surgery, he realized that's truly what he wanted to do. So 
it made a huge impact in me. And I, I've always, I've always felt, you know, even from people who've been my mentors in the past or that have influenced me, that's really been part of what has motivated me to continue doing what I do. Yeah, I think a lot of us have had that experience of seeing seeing someone who you can imagine yourself being. Again, that's just where the representation and the both leadership in spine societies, academic centers, and uh, junior faculty all the way up from top to bottom, residents for the medical students, it makes a difference. That representation and just being there makes a difference in terms of visibility. Part of the goal here with AO Access is we know that creating a more inclusive field is not just about saying, you know, we have an inclusive specialty, but it's also taking care of our patients because by creating a more inclusive environment, I think we get to know each other better. And sometimes we can relate to patients who may not look like us, whether it's race or gender. And uh, I think we get to understand each other better. And once you understand that and you can express that to the patients, when you meet these patients who may have certain biases, you know, we all have biases. The question is, how do you use that bias? Do you use it in a positive light? I think uh, we talk about implicit bias, but it's not always a negative thing. I think sometimes it can be positive as to how you use that to uh, to get a better understanding of our patients and take care of our patients. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm in Los Angeles, which is a very uh, diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-nationality city. So on our intake forums, we actually have a place of birth. And it's really interesting seeing how many people are not born in America, at least in our clinic. And I think addressing that is always really interesting and fun for me as I love to travel. So, you know, one, just going in the room and not making any assumptions about where someone is from or what what they're from, you know, indicates to them, but rather having an openness that they can express what it means to them. So I, as I go through their intake form, I always kind of bring up like, oh, interesting, you were born in such, you know, such and such. And normally it's just like a conversation, get to know you type thing. If I've been there, I say, oh, I love this or that. But it also provides a little bit of, you know, an opening and I think a reassurance that, oh, this person in to some way is acknowledging, you know, my background and potentially serves as like a recognition for them that maybe this means something to them, maybe it doesn't, but it is at least an acknowledgement of where they're from. Yeah, and as you mentioned, through that, I think patients develop a lot of trust in you. We're easily able to influence our patients sometimes when we get to know the patients. And, in the, you know, I give an example of um, having some of my patients discussing whether or not they should receive their vaccine, even though I'm not a vaccine specialist or their primary care physician. But, but partly it's because they've developed that relationship with you and they feel they can trust you and may not otherwise trust maybe the primary care provider or someone well suited to give them that advice, but because of the uh, relationship you've developed with those patients, they feel they can trust you. And I think overall that gives you access to be able to to take care of these patients and take into account other social issues they may be dealing with. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, again, just being being a person of color, you might have a particular, you know, more sensitivity essentially to the hardships or the issues that the medical community has had with people of color. Historically, you know, ignoring them or pretending that those significant issues or significant reasons for real mistrust don't exist is is naive. There are communities that have been historically marginalized by the medical community. So it is not completely unreasonable for them to harbor suspicions about the medical community as it stands. 
And if they are able to see someone who looks like them, who can understand these concerns and not write them off, but rather explain it to them in terms that they understand, it just engenders trust for the medical community at large. And this is, again, another reason why it's so important to have this diverse workforce so that patients can see, you know, not only themselves and their doctor, but really someone who understands their community and their particular issues potentially with medical care. What strategies have you taken, personally taken, whether it's mentorship or leadership positions that you feel um, have been positive as far as helping to maybe recruit more women or more underrepresented groups within the field of uh, orthopedics and spine surgery? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think, you know, I can, I'll go into what I've done, but I'd also, I guess, like to bring up that this is everyone's issue. And I think that um, this is something that's even more important for those who are not underrepresented, either minorities or gendered, to be taking leadership issues on, because essentially there are more of them, they are in more positions of power, and they have a real chance to lead by example. There have been studies from Harvard Business School that essentially say that when minorities advocate for other minorities, they're penalized for it, whereas when non-minorities advocate for minorities, they're rewarded for it. So, you know, this is a a real moment, I think, where these issues with EDI and promoting underrepresented minorities are coming to light and are generally positively regarded. So this is a really important opportunity and chance for people who are overrepresented to, you know, stake their claim in this important issue. And it's, you know, a very popular and harmless issue. And, you know, failure to act is, is not an absence of a choice. It's its own choice. In terms of what I've done specifically, um, you know, one, just continuing to show up every day is its own like mild form of advocacy for people who look like me, not just for myself. And uh, I try to be really as visible as possible to the medical students, because I, I think that that's the turning point in terms of orthopedic surgery specifically. Right now, I believe the current trend, there was a study which showed that although there's more women than men in uh, medical school in the U.S., right now, uh, we won't receive gender parity in orthopedic surgery for over 200 years at the current rates of increase for women in orthopedic surgery. So I, I don't think that that's a steady enough rate. And at the spine surgery was the least of that with fewer than 1% represented in spine surgery and fewer than 1% growth rate per year. So I just try to show up just like Dr. Charlotte Fisher did for me and just provide a woman of color that these students can see, you know, doing it, making it happen. I also work with the Perry Initiative and have done Sawbones to try to work with students at an even younger age, at the middle and high school age. They can see themselves maybe not just as physicians, but also getting power tools in their hands, uh, learning about STEM careers and trying to get women and underrepresented women especially interested in these fields that have uh, traditionally been excluded from. And then at the societal level, and now that I'm an attending surgeon, I do try to be involved in societies and get involved in in research and leadership positions where I can, because, you know, you go to those meetings and there's, like you said, there are 10 women in that room at most. It's just showing up and being number 10 rather than number nine, I think makes a difference to the other women who are there. That's really a wonderful way to explain things, Elizabeth. And I I really just love that perspective. Um, I think it's a critically important one, as so many professional spheres, not just spine surgery and orthopedics, are taking on this topic of how to increase diversity and opportunity within their specialties and organizations. 
that in addition to recognizing the problem, you know, confronting the biases and stereotypes and sometimes paucity of role modeling or mentorship opportunities like you were discussing, that creating a new and more open and flexible structure um, that are simply more inclusive and don't allow for all those barriers or biases to flourish may end up actually being the most effective tool we have uh, to improving that rate of change so that this doesn't actually take us 200 years to fix. I have friends who belong to different underrepresented groups who sometimes feel that burden that, you know, they've joined a hospital system or a department and it's almost as they've become that diversity person champion. And after a while, for some people, it can become a burden where they feel I'm the only one sitting here and just because I happen to be underrepresented, uh, working to improve diversity or inclusion within our hospital system or our department. So I think one thing you mentioned, I think is is incumbent on the system itself, not just one person, to work to promote inclusion and diversity within their hospital or within their department. I think it requires all of us to stay proactive and welcoming. Personally, I know I'm always out looking for students I feel I can inspire. As an undergraduate student, I did one of those summer programs at Yale, a summer program for undergrad students interested in going to medicine. And one of the medical students who was the program director during that summer took a handful of us under his wings and mentored us and did reviews for us taking a medical college acceptance test. And we spent six weeks at Yale over the summertime. You know, after that, we all returned to our various undergrads and various institutions. And I remember taking my MCAT and getting accepted into medical school. And uh, at some point, I think we had like some small reunion at one of the uh, minority annual meeting. And I turned to him and I told him, thank you for mentoring us throughout the process, because if you didn't do that, I'm not sure I'll be where I am right now. And his response to me was not, yeah, yeah, you're welcome. His response was like, don't thank me. Just do the same thing to the next person. That's what I try to do. And it's the same thing I tell my students. I'm still a mentee. I still have mentors who guide me as I move through my career. And sometimes not every student is motivated to go out and seek mentors. So I think that's something that as mentors, we have to go out sometimes and seek some of the students and uh, help them out. When I started my practice here in Rochester, I got engaged with the Inclusion and Diversity Office. And every now and then I get an email. It's like, oh, we have this student we're interviewing for medical school. Or we have this student in medical school who may need some guidance or some motivation. Do you mind talking to them? And I'm always eager and always interested in doing that because I think that's really how we start implementing change. I think you're really right. And again, people's mentors are not always going to look like them, not by a long shot, there will never be an increase in women or underrepresented minorities if that had to be the case. So just because you're a white man doesn't mean that you can't have a cohort of women of color as your mentees. And I, I certainly know that I've had many men and overrepresented majority as my mentors because that's what's available. And they've been fantastic to me promoting my career and my research interests. So I, I, I think you're totally right that that ends up being this sort of intangible difference that helps set up some people for success and others who don't have it have a much more difficult time. But it's something that everyone can be a part of. Everyone in leadership can find someone who's more junior to them who they can help out in some way. We've been talking about all the uh, successes and what we've done to implement change within our specialty in orthopedics and in spinal surgery. 
as we discussed that, obviously, we're not always successful at what we try to do. I know personally, uh, all the things I've tried to do here is motivating some of the uh, students to get involved with research. Gotten so busy clinically, I for one know that's something I'm not succeeding at very well right now. What changes have you personally made that have not been successful? And what have you done personally to deal with these changes? I think that's something that I'm sure uh, other other faculty have run into is essentially putting in a lot of uh, effort, a lot of recruitment effort, and then not having the student or resident uh, decide to pursue the field that you've essentially chosen for them. And that can be difficult where we've heavily recruited people and invested a lot of time and energy, and then they've you know made the decision, which is theirs to make, to take their life in a different direction other than orthopedic surgery or than spine surgery. So that I would say would be the most pressing one where you spend a lot of time and energy uh, mentoring someone and then they they don't do what you want them to do. You know, that's their choice to make. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it just speaks to the need to cast a wide net and be available to as many people as possible to try to demonstrate why this is an attractive choice for them to make. And, you know, part of that is also making this an attractive field there are some very legitimate reasons that people choose not to pursue orthopedic surgery or spine surgery. And I think potentially by making these fields more flexible and more available to people who have different types of lifestyles or different work schedules or different responsibilities outside of work could make this a field that you know is more inclusive. Another thing we talk about interactions with patients, you know, all of this, we talk about mentorship, leadership, improving diversity and inclusion. At the end of the day, again, we circle back to how does this affect our patient care? How does this help us take better care of our patients? Because at the end of the day, our job is to serve our community and take care of patients. Based on the experience, what patients experiences as a surgeon do you think sometimes come into consideration as you interact with patients or as you discuss planning for your surgeries with the patient? Do you think really plays a significant role in helping those patients make the right decision regarding their treatment? So something that's actually come up a lot, which was a surprise to me, is how much a significant goal is cosmesis in uh, adult spinal deformity surgery. Uh, a lot of women, more so than men, talk to me about how in addition to the pain and the disability, they also feel very deformed and they feel very uncomfortable, progressively uncomfortable with how they're looking. And that was sort of news to me. And I do wonder sometimes if they're sharing that with, with male surgeons. And it's an important conversation to have because if they don't have essentially the cosmetic outcome that they want, they might feel that something was done wrong or they didn't get the outcome that they really wanted to. So I take a lot of time to explain to them, you know, the quality of life indicators and our goals of surgery and how we achieve those goals in terms of pain reduction and quality of life reduction. I really never saw that conversation happen, you know, in the offices of, of my mentors who are mostly male. So from your experience, uh, Elizabeth, in planning your surgeries, do you have any uh, tips for our listeners as to what they can do, especially, you know, when we discuss inclusion and diversity and understanding our patients to provide the best patient care? I guess well, the thing that I like to do is, again, just really provide the time and the emotional space for patients to bring their questions for you. I do meet with patients for big surgeries multiple times. I give them the name of the surgery. I tell them to look at certain um, society webinars, and I tell them to write down their questions and bring them to me. I do refer to second opinions, and then I just try to give them the space so they can ask these uncomfortable questions in a, in a comfortable environment. 
So for certain people, example, who need to be on their knees and praying, I say you are potentially going to have some limitations in terms of your, your motion after this. For people who have certain religious beliefs about uh, allograft, I, you know, I'm very clear to them, this is what we're putting in your bone. This is donated from someone who chose to donate their tissues to make someone else's life better, a very generous person and good karma. But if you don't want it, you know, there are alternatives. So I just try to create the, the time and space so that they can be comfortable asking their uncomfortable questions. People, they have questions that they don't want to ask a person that they're a stranger with. And so it's just creating a space and an environment where patients feel like they have a, a confidential, trusting relationship where they can ask those uncomfortable questions. I think sometimes we're too busy and there's so much noise around what we're doing and we fail to realize that uh, we have to stop and actually listen and pay more attention to what the patient is trying to tell us instead of feeling like we're rushed. Well, we really appreciate you spending the time with us, and uh, we truly appreciate all the uh, work you've done promoting diversity and inclusion, mentoring students, and improving the uh, field of spine surgery and orthopedic surgery. Thank you so much for your generous words. It was a pleasure to be here and speak about this important topic with you, and thank you to AO for recognizing this topic. Thank you so much to Dr. Elizabeth Lord and Dr. Emmanuel Menga for sharing some really insightful and important thoughts, but also sharing some very personal experiences. One thing we want to recognize through AO Access is that as surgeons and healthcare providers, the jobs that we do every day are much bigger than the procedures we perform or the medical advice that we provide. And as doctors, our experiences are much larger than that too. Making sure that we can provide the space to have conversations like this, where we can weave it all together, is going to be what helps push us forward and what helps us to do our jobs better and provide better care. Thanks for listening, and please continue to look for our AO Access to Success podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for more great minds and great discussions like the ones you heard today. Thank you for listening to the AO Access to Success podcast series. Be sure to visit our webpage to facilitate your personal and professional development by exploring dimensions of leadership at AO Foundation, who we are, about AO, AO Access, to join the conversation.